Well, this Advent season is a wonderful time of year. It runs over four weeks or four Sundays, we could say, leading up to Christmas Day. And within Christendom, it gives us a wonderful opportunity and a wonderful chance to tell a story. Not just any old story, but the most wonderful, the most amazing story that the world has ever heard and we have ever been given opportunity to tell. A story which is birthed not out of the imagination and fantasy of a creative's mind, but one that is birthed out of an historical event which happened 2,000 years ago. A story whereby Almighty God, the creator of the whole universe, chose to come to earth, being born as a human baby, a baby who we would come to know as Jesus the Christ. Jesus who grew like us, who learnt like us, who experienced the ups and downs of life like we do, but unlike us, lived a sinless life a pure and perfect life. Jesus, the light of the world who came to re-establish his kingdom, his reign, his dominion upon the earth and bring hope and salvation to all mankind. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Today, at the start of this Advent season, we begin once again to tell this simple yet powerful story, as we do every year, at this time of year anyway. And we do it as a reminder to ourselves and to all around us of the real reason that we celebrate Christmas. The real reason we celebrate Christmas. This year at Welcome, we have introduced an Advent wreath And we will use its symbolistic meaning to help guide us on this storytelling journey. But before we start, we need to ask three questions. What is Advent? What is an Advent wreath? And where did it all come from? So that we can, uh, you know, dispel any fears that we may have of what it's all about The word Advent is derived, or it's Latin, it's derived from the Latin word Adventus, and in essence, it means coming. Uh, 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 It means arrival. And in Christian context, it's associated with our focus upon Jesus the Christ. It is thought that the earliest inception of the celebration of Advent goes all the way back to the fourth or fifth century and traditionally Advent or the celebration of Jesus' coming would be celebrated over the four weeks, four Sundays leading up to Christmas Day. Now, what about the inception of the wreath? Well, as the story goes, in 1839, Johann, I'm going to get this wrong so forgive me Okay, if you can speak German, Johann Heinrich Wiken, I believe, No one's telling me otherwise, so I'm going with that. 
uh, who was a Lutheran minister, worked at a children's mission in Germany. And he created a wreath out of the wheel of a cart. So the horse and cart, he ripped the wheel off and used that as the first uh, inception of it. He had grown, apparently, increasingly frustrated because the children, throughout the season leading up to Christmas, would come running up to him most days saying, is it Christmas Day? Well, you can imagine if you're in a, you know, in a, in a, in a children's home and you've got multiple children on a daily basis coming to ask you the same question, you're going to get frustrated, right? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've our daughter every day, and that's just one, let alone, let alone a whole... Um, you know, a whole uh, uh, missionary full of children. So what he did is he got the wheel and on the wheel's outer ring, he placed 20 red candles. And in between every fifth candle, red candle, he placed a larger white candle. The children would then light the red candle Monday to Saturday, one, one, one a day, and on Sunday, they would light the white candle as a way for them to count down to Christmas Day. I mean, genius, really, when you think about it, isn't it? But as the idea caught on, someone at some point, we don't know who, replaced this wooden cart wheel with evergreens fashioned into a circle and then reduced the number of candles which in our day and age is a good thing because the cost of candles is not cheap. But it was reduced. So what is the meaning? What does it mean, this Advent wreath that we know of today and we see in many churches around the world? Well, the evergreen Advent wreath, similar to the one that we have here, has over the the years... um, grown in itself to have symbolism. Christianity.com explains it this way, very helpfully, I think. Advent wreaths were fashioned out of evergreens, twisted together in a circle to symbolise continuous life across the seasons, from the death of winter to the new life in spring. Naturally, this earthly symbolism also points to the spiritual symbolism of newness and the promise of eternal life and salvation offered through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The circular nature of the Advent wreath, similar to a wedding ring or band, is further meant to reflect the unending love of Christ and eternal life offered through salvation. Holly leaves Berries and seeds are often added to the Advent wreath. Holly leaves can be prickly and therefore used to represent the crown of thorns placed on Jesus' head during his crucifixion. Berries, which are typically red, also point to Christ's sacrifice and the blood shed for sin, and his blood shed for sin. Pine cones, seeds and nuts can also be placed within the wreath as a symbol and Uh, promise of new life. Together, the elements of the Advent wreath reflect the new life and eternal salvation offered through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who we now celebrate at this time of year.
We're very creative, aren't we, us church folk? <laughs> you know, always figuring out ways to help point us to remember Jesus in whatever whatever's around us. What better way than the creation and things? Oh, this is fake, but if it was real, the creation <laughs> that God Himself created. All points back. It's wonderful. That is why, if you look around, not so much the Christmas tree, but if you look around the, uh, you know, the church today, the, uh, we, we, we've put up these garlands, we've put up these uh, evergreens and berries and pine cones and bits and pieces, symbols of eternal life to help us remember that promise that we have. It reminds us of the Lord's provision doesn't he feed the birds with berries? The Lord's provision. And it also reminds us of Jesus' later death and resurrection, which is what it all points to anyway. And it should always point to. And I just want to take this opportunity to give a big shout out to Kelly and Skye, particularly, for uh, spending their day decorating the church. It's, uh, yeah, it's lovely. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> Bet you're all embarrassed now, aren't you? <laughs> well, what about the candles themselves? We've lit one of these today, and uh, don't worry, there's water and the fire extinguishers. We planned it here. Did you see that? <laughs> that, well, that was foresight right there. Though traditionally the Advent wreath was four candles, a fifth was added. Later on, well, as the tradition grew itself, some churches still only keep four. That's fine. Some have have five. That's absolutely fine as well. Four of the candles would be lit on the four Sundays before Christmas, as we've already said. And this last candle in the middle was lit on Christmas Eve or on Christmas Day. And just like the season of Advent has meaning, and just like the evergreen and the pines and the berries have meaning and symbolism, so does the candles. They're not just there for show, they are there to help us point and remember and to reflect upon something. The first red candle, and this is in no particular order, but the first red candle lit, which we lit today, is called the prophet's candle. And it's a symbolism of hope. Reminding us of the prophets of the Old Testament, especially Isaiah, who waited in hope for the Messiah's arrival. The second red candle, which we'll light next week, is called the Bethlehem candle, and it represents faith. It reminds us that the prophet Micah had foretold that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, and also reminds us of the faith Joseph and Mary had in God and in their journey to Bethlehem. The third candle, which we'll light the week after, is called the shepherd's candle, and it symbolises joy. We need to have a little bit of joy this time of year, don't we? It reminds us of the great joy of knowing the Saviour has come, and the joy the shepherds had when the angels announced that Jesus had come for all people including them who were seemingly unimportant people, particularly at that time. 
And the fourth and final red candle, which will light the carol service, is called the angel's candle. And it represents peace. I'm sure we'll agree we all need peace and we all desire peace in this world. Peace, reminding us of the angel's announcement that Jesus had come to bring peace to the world and bring people close to God and close to each other. And then finally, the white candle is called Christ's candle and it represents light and purity. This candle, which we will light on Christmas Day, represents Jesus' coming into the world as a pure light to the world and is placed in the centre of the wreath to remind us on the prominent, of the prominent position that Christ has in the world. He is the centre of all things. Over the next four Sundays on Christmas Day, we will light these candles and their symbolisms will help us tell this simple Advent story. Each week, we will focus on the hope the prophets had, the faith of Mary and Joseph, the joy of the shepherds, the, priests, uh, the peace proclaimed by the angels, and the light and purity of Jesus, our King and our Saviour. So that brings me to today. I'd like to draw our thoughts to the relevance of this first candle that we lit today, this prophet's candle, the candle of hope. We must ask, before we go any further, what is hope? What is hope and what does it mean? Well, if you went out into the world and you looked for this, uh, this the, the, answer these questions from a worldly point of view, Hope can be a difficult thing to define, you will be told. You could say that hope is a feeling of expectation and a desire for a particular thing to happen. It is often related to a personal experience and the positive impact it can have on the human life is widely recognised and difficult to ignore. You will often hear people speak about hope, strengthening them and helping them through difficult times, bringing them through desperate situations, but also helping them stay committed and motivated to achieving their goals. I hope I won't eat that much this Christmas because I need to burn it off at the gym. <laughs> you know, it's still hope. Whether it's a realistic one is a different story, but... Hope often gives people a reason to continue fighting and believing that their current circumstances will improve. Despite, and this is the reality of it, despite the unpredictable nature of the world that we all live in. Psychologist Ellen Houston suggests that hope can be broken down into four primary areas. The first is a realistic hope. The second is a utopian hope. The third is a chosen hope. And the fourth is a transcendent hope. Let's just break these down a little bit. So realistic hope is 
hoping for an outcome that is reasonable or probable, i.e., if someone is suffering from a chronic pain, they may, they may hope for a small reduction in that pain whilst knowing that complete eradication of the pain is unrealistic. Does that make sense? Utopian hope is a hope that is based on a future united action that will lead to us all having a better future. You could probably say and probably argue that we are seeing elements of a utopian hope within the challenges in our, in our social and political world at the minute. This desire to want to have this perfect reality and we'll do whatever we can and to, to, to try to, to, to get that. So it's utopian hope. Chosen hope is a hope that helps people to live without, uh, sorry, with, with a difficult present but also with a certain future. Let me say that again. Chosen hope is a hope that helps people live with a difficult present, a difficult now, but also with an uncertain future. An example might be a person with a chronic illness who determinedly chooses to believe that that treatment will work irrespective of the current outlook. And finally, transcendent hope is the hope that is not tied to any specific outcome, but is a general hope that something good can and will come. You could say that that goodness, uh, hope that that goodness will prevail whatever happens. I think I can fall into that, that one sometimes. I'm sure that every one of us, like me, can relate in some way to the elements of these aspects um, of hope. And the reality is that there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with you being able to connect and say, actually, yeah, a bit of utopian hope here, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Okay, fine. Because I would suggest to you that every person in the world has deep within them a hope longing for aspects of their life to be different. hope that the situations in this world would be different. <coughs> Reality is, why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't anyone else out there? Are we not all made in the image of God? Is God not the creator of hope? The, the, you know, the, 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 the person who invented hope? Why wouldn't we all sit here and have elements of hope in our deep in our hearts? Even people, I mean, we know it as Christians, we know the truth of hope. But the reality is we're just waiting for everyone else out there to catch up with us. <laughs> Aren't we? Lord, help us. Hope is defined in the world as an emotion. It is often referred to as a sense of feeling that we can all experience, but it can be hard to define. And though this might be true, I praise God. I praise God that the hope we have now as Christians, the hope 
that we now look forward to isn't based upon an emotion that we struggle with to define, but founded upon an unshakable, an unmovable, an unbreakable truth which was foretold at the beginning of time and declared through God's prophets of old. Amen. Amen indeed. This truth that a Messiah would be born into the world. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, who would bring hope and freedom to all who would choose to lay their life down and surrender to him. So what and who are these prophets, these messengers of God who have an Advent candle named after them? And I mean, who wouldn't want an Advent candle named after you? Quite simply, quite simply, the prophets were people chosen and used by God to communicate his message to the world. To communicate God's message as he gives them insight to do. These men and women lived not for their own glory, but for the glory of God. Their unique vocation allowed them to authoritatively speak on God's behalf. That's quite a responsibility, isn't it? They could authoritatively speak upon God's behalf. They never spoke on their own authority, nor did they share their own opinions. They only shared what God had told them to share and what he told them to instruct whomever he places in front of them. Their role was primarily to make God's will and holiness known and to instruct God's people ultimately to reject idolatry and sin. That was in essence the the, the bulk of the message that they were there to speak into. This was, as you can imagine, an incredibly important job which is often dangerous and a lot of the time not very popular with people, including the the rulers of the time or kings, whomever they may be. And there was very little chance, if any, of you, if you were a prophet back in the Old Testament, from getting away from the task that the Lord had placed or called you to do. A prophet was required to deliver God's message accurately. The prophet Micah puts it this way, when he was speaking to the king, he says this, As surely as the Lord lives, I can tell only, tell the king only what the Lord tells me. He can only say what the Lord has told him to say. Some, like the prophet Jeremiah, tried to keep silent, but found that God wouldn't allow them to keep silent. If you read in Jeremiah 29, and I've, I'm, I've purposely put this translation in the NLT because the ESV can be a little bit confusing to, to understand. You've got to chew it a little bit to understand what you're trying to say. But the NLT says it this way. So Jeremiah says, But if I say, I'll never mention the Lord or speak in his name, his word burns in my heart like a fire. It's like a fire in my bones. I am worn out trying to hold on to it. I cannot do it. The prophet Jonah, many of us here know the prophet Jonah, tried 
to avoid his responsibilities, didn't he? God calls him to go to the city of Nineveh with a message. What does he do? (laughs) Gets in a boat and goes the opposite direction. Tries to run from it. Now, the truth is, you know, it was never going to happen. God gets hold of him one way way or the other, draws him back and he goes and does it. He he may not be happy, you know, going to Nineveh to share the message, but he does it anyway. Um, You can read the story for yourself. Um, But there is an ultimate consequence to prophets in the Old Testament if they disobeyed God's command for them. And it was death. You can read this for yourself, but a homework, 1 Kings 13. 1 Kings 13. The unnamed prophet from Judah. Went against what God told him specifically to do. Ultimately, he was, he was lied to. But the consequence was that he was eaten by a lion. You can read it for yourself in 1 Kings 13. Though the Old Testament prophets don't just speak God's word in, into the situations of their current day, that wasn't just what they were doing. It was a primary thing of what they were doing, speaking into those situations, but it wasn't all they were doing. Many would predict the relative near future and also the distant future, distant future events, either through direct communication with God or through dreams and visions that God gave them. As an example, Joseph, Joseph, via a dream, predicted the seven years of plenty followed by the seven years of famine, did he not? Absolutely. And that event happened within 14 years of Joseph having that dream. So that was a relative near prophecy that came to pass. Others, like Daniel's, like the prophet Daniel's and Zechariah's prophecies, concern end times, as in the time to come, the times that still haven't happened yet. And the wonderful truth today thought I had, sorry I missed out a bit. The the reality is is that for for a, a prophecy to be a prophecy, to be authentic, it needs to be fulfilled. Would we agree with that? It's quite it's quite simple thinking, really, isn't it? If it's if if you are prophesying something, it needs to come to pass. Else, well, it's just it's just a wishful thinking. It's just maybe a hope for the future, or a, a wouldn't be lovely if this happens down the line. And the wonderful truth today is that the prophecies foretold about the birth of Jesus have been fulfilled. Amen indeed. Well, how do we know this? Not only because history can validate Jesus' existence, which it can, and there's a, you know, if you're in your apologetics, study up on that, because that'll be good to have, you have conversations out there with, with people who just believe Jesus existed. But history can validate Jesus' existence, but more importantly, more importantly, to me anyway, 
God tells us so in his word. As an example, during the lighting of the candle this morning, Kelly read one such prophecy from Isaiah 9. A powerful and a wonderful prophecy and wonderful words. And many scriptural passages tell of the fulfilment of this prophecy. One such summary is proclaimed by Jesus himself when he stood in the synagogue and opened Isaiah's scroll at the beginning of his ministry. We said this quite a lot. It feels like over the, this last year. But I think it's because it's so important. He opened the scroll and he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. That prophecy was fulfilled. And that's not the only passage. There are many in the Old and New Testament that we, can, we could turn to that would validate that prophecy being fulfilled. But let's look at a couple of others. What about the prophecies about Mary? Two chapters in, or before, in Isaiah's, uh, in the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah 7.14, he prophesied that the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Hundreds of years later, the angel Gabriel appears to a virgin named Mary and says, what does she say? Exactly the same thing. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and she, uh, he will be called Emmanuel. And what does Mary do? She gives birth to a son who we know to be Jesus, God incarnate. A prophecy fulfilled. But what about the prophecy of Jesus' place of birth? Matthew, in Matthew uh, chapter 2, verse 1, tells us that Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judah in the days of Herod the king. Behold, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem. Now, there are two prophecies in here that were fulfilled, but I'm just going to focus on the first one, Bethlehem. This fulfilled a prophecy proclaimed by the prophet Micah when he said this, but you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. These are just three of the Old Testament prophecies regarding Jesus' coming into the world. But if you did some work, there are lots more. There are lots more. We just don't have the time today to be able to go through them all. But it, it raises a question, doesn't it? Why is this important? Why is this important? Because it gives validity to the words of those ancient seers, those ancient messengers of God, those prophets. It brings validity to what we read in the Old Testament when we also read in the New Testament that they have been fulfilled. That in itself can give us hope and confidence that they were true prophets. I mean, we live in an age where, I mean, it doesn't matter where, where, where you stand on, on today's prophecies and prophetic language. 
But the reality is we live in a world where there seems to be a lot of uh, prophets out there that just prophesy things that don't seem to come to pass. But we can be sure and confident in the prophets of the Old Testament because we see the fulfilment in the writings. We know these aren't just... It's not just blind faith because archaeology tells us these prophecies were written at this time, they've come to fulfilment these times. You can carbon date, you can do all of these things. There's no way they would have known each other. It can only be supernatural. It can only be the work of God. Praise God for that indeed. But the wonderful thing is that if these prophecies are true, then maybe other prophecies in the Bible are also true. Logical thinking? Absolutely. Again, if you went back to Isaiah's, the book of Isaiah, and you read, he foretells another event relating to the coming Messiah. He says this, He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care, yet it was with our weakness that he carried. It was our sorrow that weighed him down and we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole, praise God. He was whipped so we could be healed, praise God. All of us like sheep have gone astray. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet, the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. She's Isaiah writing, back then, foreseeing the coming Christ and what he was coming to do. 700 years after this prophecy was foretold, the Jews turned their backs on Jesus, their long-awaited Messiah. He was despised, he was beaten, he was mocked, He was pierced and hung on a cross and was punished for the rebellion that we have toward God. He did take upon himself the sins of humanity and paid the the price required to provide freedom for you and for me. He was laid in a tomb and on the third day he was raised. He did raise to new life, conquering death, defeating the power of darkness and providing a way for us to return into right relationship with God the Father, our Creator. And just like many other prophecies, the fulfilment of this prophecy was confirmed later on in Scripture. Peter says this, he committed no sin, neither 
was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly, God the Father. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. We are healed for you are straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. 700 years before Isaiah prophesied that this would happen, here we are reading one of Jesus' disciples writing of an event that happened. The prophecy foretold, the prophecy fulfilled. The Jewish nation lived in hope for hundreds of years for the coming of their Messiah, their Saviour, who they believed would free them from the oppression of foreign nations and set up a kingdom on earth that they would then be rulers of. This hope was birthed out of the hearing of God's word through these Old Testament prophets. The shocking truth is that many did not believe Jesus to be the Messiah because he didn't fit their expectations of who they expected Messiah to be. And many still don't believe it today. It's a shocker that, isn't it? Many still do not believe it today, irrespective of the vast support found in Scripture. That's why we had, um, I've got his name, the gentleman who came from uh, the mission to the Jews, who is coming back in the new year, by the way. But that, who, Philip Amos, that's the one. That's why we had Philip come and speak. That's his whole life is revolved around mission to share Christ with the Jews in London. We wouldn't have to have that missional outreach, that, that you know, uh, apologetic outreach to, to, to be able to share the Messiah Christ and open their eyes to the Messiah if they did believe this all those years ago. What a tragedy. But keep praying, keep praying, because there is always hope. Amen? Amen? Amen indeed. I'm going to ask the band to come up, if that's okay. I don't know what hope looks like to you today, but... What I can tell you is that hope doesn't have to be just an emotion that you cling to. For believers today, our hope is based on the belief in the truth of God's words. A hope, a truthful hope that is based on who Jesus says He is based upon what Jesus has already done and based upon what he will do in the future and promises to do in the future. 
That is what our hope as believers is based upon. It's not just an emotional feeling, because if it was based on just emotion, we'd be a wreck. Because our emotions are always up and down all the time. We need stability and a constant. And that is why we, we, our hope is what we see in the promises of God's word. Irrespective of where our emotions are, they are still true. If you're here today and you haven't given your life to Jesus and maybe struggling for hope because of the what the world has, has around you is just not very forgiving. I can only offer the greatest gift to you today and that is hope in Jesus Christ. It doesn't take us out of our situation but it does give us that stability. That gives us something to cling to when it's tough. It gives us something to cling to in the, in, in, in the dark night. It's that wonderful poem, I don't know if anyone's read it, The Dark Night of the Soul. That is a gift worth clinging to. Is it a gift worth holding on to? Church, we are joined here this morning not just because our, uh, of our belief in the prophets of the Old Testament and not just emphasise just because Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead but also because of the exciting eternal hope yet to be fulfilled but spoken of by the New Testament writers prophecies and promises of the second coming of Christ and the ushering in of a new heaven and a new earth and the eternal home from where we will dwell with the heavenly Father and walk with Jesus. Oh, can you imagine walking with Jesus in the cool of the day? Oh, I'm looking forward to that. The Apostle Peter says this, and these are the promises These are the things that are yet to be fulfilled. These are the things that we can cling to, the hope that we can stand upon. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for the salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. What a wonderful promise that we have, we can cling to with hope. Paul says in Romans, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory, the glory that is to be revealed to us. At the end time when Jesus comes, when Jesus returns. In Philippians we read, Paul says our citizenship is where? It's in heaven. And from it we await our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Again, a foretelling, a prophetic word of the coming of Jesus. 
which is yet to come, yet to happen. Jesus himself in Revelation 20 says these words, Behold, I am coming soon. If Jesus says, I am coming soon, don't you dare disbelieve what Jesus says because he's not one for breaking his promises. And last but not least, again in Revelation, we read, he will wipe away every tear from your eyes and death shall be no more Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. These are all promises that are yet to happen. And that is why as Christians we can stand in hope, irrespective of how we feel, and await these things to be fulfilled. We lit this candle today, not because it holds any spiritual importance they are just objects for us to look at and reflect but because it helps us draw our focus to Jesus who is the hope of the world foretold by the prophets of old at the start of this Advent season as we celebrate the birth of our Saviour let us be reminded afresh of the hope we have in Christ and be encouraged to share this hope with friends and family who we are going to enjoy this time with over this Christmas time because it is the greatest gift that we could ever give. Amen? Amen. 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 Over to you, Matt.